You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 362 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Gina Militia. Oh wait, hang on. No, I'm not here with Gina Militia. I'm flying solo at the top of this episode, but you will hear from Gina soon in our interview where we talk to landscape photographer Brenda Petrella and Gina has a chat with Brenda. But I am flying solo for the first part of this episode and I thought that I would talk to you about event photography. I know that a lot of photographers do events, whether they're, you know, business networking functions or, you know, weddings are a kind of event, but I'm talking more about like corporate events where there's a gala dinner or a movie premiere or something like that, or even a staff Christmas party or that kind of thing where you are hired to document the event. And often an event gig is one of the first um, kind of gigs that a starting a, a photographer starting out can land, um, and I think it's really important to you know make sure that you think about some of the things that are important to the event organisers. It's not just about getting some great shots of you know people mingling, but one important question that I find some event photographers forget to ask is. Who are the people that you that are essential to get shots of? I've dealt with it, some event photographers where in the end I see the results of their photography and visually they look great. Um, in terms of composition, they're, they're very good. In terms of lighting, excellent, excellent technical ability, especially, you know, in dark rooms. Sometimes it can blow out or sometimes it can be too dark or sometimes it can be blurry. But, you know, great uh, from a technical point of view, but unusable. <laughs> and by unusable, I mean I've looked at the shots and, you know, people in my committee or my colleagues have looked at the shots. We have no idea who these people are. So <laughs> the photographer has been really busy all night taking photos of people who we don't even know why they were there. or And, and there are no photos of the VIPs or very few photos, no photos of the event organizers, no photos of the people who are actually instrumental in putting on the event or who we need to feature in subsequent marketing collaterals. So yes, that that is definitely a failure on our part of not briefing the photographer appropriately, but also if you're a photographer and you're photographing an event, make sure that you value add by asking the question, who are the people, can you point out the people who it's essential that, you know, I get shots of and in what kind of instances? 
sometimes you can get lots of shots of people drinking and partying and, and you know, um, imbibing all sorts of alcohol and food and they might be really great fun shots, but actually they wanted you to focus on the formal proceedings or something like that, right? So really, really important to make sure you have a very clear idea of what's important to the client with event photography. Just thought I'd throw that tip in. Now, also a big shout out to our gold community, members of the gold community. This week, they've been busy focusing on pricing and self-worth. Gina has been coaching members to charge higher rates for their photo shoots. And I think that that is really, really um, such a great topic because it's not just a matter of, hey, adding a higher number to your rate card. It's a mindset shift. And that is so, so important. Um, I've been reading a book lately by Andrew Griffiths and it's called Somebody Has to Be the Most Expensive. Why Not Make It You? Which is such a thought-provoking title for a book. And it is very much about mindset. Uh, so, and it's not just a matter of ripping people off or anything like that. It's, it's, it's very much about being that valuable that people want to, um, pay a higher rate. Of course, you might not need to be the most expensive, but it's about charging what you're worth. Um, everyone in the gold community have, have also been going really well with the zero to hero protocols that Gina has been, uh, sharing in the community. Newbies have been learning how to shoot garage lighting, especially after completing the Get Off Auto course, which comes uh, as a bonus if you join the community. I love how the members of the gold community, the goldies are aged, you know, between 30 and, and over 80. It's so fantastic to have people from all walks of life, from absolute beginners to pros. Um, every level is catered to you, you know, because Gina has had decades, literally decades of experience shooting all sorts of different things. Um, and obviously earns a very healthy living uh, as a photographer. So has so much to share, not only about the technical aspects of photography, and the workflows associated with photography, but also making sure that you have a successful, sustainable, long career as a photographer. Um, each member is given a dedicated list of tutorials based on their specific needs and skill sets. So I just love how the Gold community is helping to change the lives and photography careers of so many members. If you're interested in um, finding out a little bit more about the Gold community, have a listen to this. This podcast is brought to you by the Gold community. If you're wondering what it's like to be a member of the Gold community over at GinaMilitia.com, I asked Rebecca Martin why she joined. I was reading your book. I bought your video about posing, which was extremely helpful. And from there, I got into the Gold community. There's so much. Uh, <laughs> everyone is so encouraging and very helpful. And it's so nice that you are there and you, you know, take that personal interest in each one of us and help guide us and push us to the next level. What's also nice is all your tutorials and we can go back and learn it 
before we do it. And then even with the editing, oh, how do I get the red out of their skin? We just go back in a tutorial and go through it as we're editing. It's fabulous. I think I've grown. I feel much more confident. Now I can post and know that I am really getting good advice and they're seeing things that I may not see. Everyone is just so encouraging. If they're serious about photography and they want to grow and learn, this is the place to be. Absolutely. If you'd like to find out more about the Gold community, head to ginamilitia.com and click on memberships. Okay, so let's find out more about this week's topic. Gina chats with Brenda Petrella, and this is a complete guide to landscape photography for beginners and intermediates with Brenda. Brenda is based in Vermont, and she is the founder of Outdoor Photography School and the host of the Outdoor Photography Podcast. She also has a successful YouTube channel, which has recently surpassed over 29,000 subscribers. So Brenda has a really interesting story because she took a leap of faith when she left her cushy job as a cancer researcher for a tree change and a life as a landscape photographer. I mean, that is a big leap. So Gina and Brenda talk about how it feels to make a leap of faith because maybe you're thinking of making your own leap of faith in your own life, um, in in whatever career that you're currently in and, and comfortable in and wondering whether you can get yourself out of that comfort zone and to, to embrace your passion for photography. They also talk about why every portrait photographer should embrace landscape photography, which I think is really cool. Also, the importance of leaving some shots to the imagination and not having to shoot everything you see. So you don't have to be too literal when you're composing and, and conceiving of your shots, right? They also talk about the importance of being a socially, environmentally and ethically responsible landscape photographer, about scouting locations, being in the moment, whether HDR is overrated, how to find great light and also about gear. Very important conversation about gear and settings and a lot more. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Brenda Petrella. Brenda Pratella, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Gina. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm really excited to chat to you. Before we start, one thing I always ask my guests, where in the world are you? I am in Vermont in the United States, northeastern part of the United States. So beautiful part of the world. So you sound surrounded by like amazing forests and mountains, right? Yes, exactly. In fact, the state is now about 70 to 75% forested. Oh my God, that's amazing. And so how yeah. often are you getting out there? It's just like, so just paint a picture. Like, are you on some land there? Are you overlooking, because I'm overlooking the, um, the Australian bush at the moment and it's magnificent. So what, like, what are you seeing out your window? Well, currently it's night, so I don't see much, but <laughs> it's dark. Um, yeah, um, we have a little, little farm, actually. We have about 30, uh, five acres in Vermont. Um, we've got two rescue cows. And so we have a, a couple of fields for them to graze in. And um, uh, it's very hilly. And so up on the top of the hill on, on one side of our property, we have actually a sugar bush. So it's a whole bunch of old maples. And so wow. 
we uh, make maple syrup every spring. Oh my god! Um, and so we sort of um, live off the land in that way, if you, if you like. Uh, and we've got nice views of the hills and valleys. And uh, Vermont, you know, sort of lends itself to these smaller scenes, these smaller landscapes, because it is so hilly. I mean, there are the green mountains that go down the the central spine of the state. And that's where the tallest mountains of the state are. Um, But you don't really get these long range views that you would say out in the American West or the Pacific Northwest. Even you don't see, you know, the mountains off in the distance so much as a lot of rolling hills. Right. It sounds amazing. And the other thing, oh, my God, I love cows. So what's it like? You do. Have, yeah, they're amazing. It's like I've they stayed are. on properties and you know what I love? There's a saying in Australia, I don't know if it applies over there as well, but um, you're waiting till the cows come home because they come yes. home every night at the same time. So that to me gives me so much joy. So whenever I've stayed and it's like, oh, the cows are back, the cows are back. I just think they're so cool. And I've been uh, for the last year working for a um, a, a, a farm magazine. So I've been visiting a lot of cows and photographing them. So I'm rather rather attached. So That's so great. What are your two like? Well, um, so these are rescue cows. I'll I'll tell a brief story. But um, so about four years ago, we found this um, starving, lost uh, cow in our woods. And um, we never found her owners. Um, And so and she was starving and she had porcupine quills in her nose and was just really in poor shape and uh, terrified of people. And I had actually just resigned uh, from my job at that point. And so I had some time on my hands. And so every day I would hike up into the woods and bring her food. Um, This was in March. So we still had snow on the ground and there was nothing for her to eat. And um, long story short, after about a month, month and a half of doing this, I slowly won over her trust to the point where she would follow me. And, uh, I realized, Oh, maybe I can actually get her out of here. Cause there was no way we could get corral her or anything. We tried all kinds of rescue efforts that failed. And, um, in the, in the process of trying to find her owners, we were, I was taking a whole bunch of pictures of her and, and sharing them with other farmers in the area. Nobody knew where she came from, but one farmer said, well, you know, I don't know whose cow she is, but she's going to have that calf soon. And we were like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So it turns out she was pregnant too. And that's how we ended up with two. So um, her name is Miss Bovine and she's a Holstein. And uh, she had uh, a calf that I actually had to help deliver, which was not part of my expertise. (laughs) And his name is Ferdinand and he's about 2,500 pounds now. And um, just massive. He's huge. Um, and so, yeah, that's how we ended up with two. And she and I just have always had this strong bond and I, I couldn't, uh, part with her. So, oh. <laughs> so we have the really, uh, impractical thing of pet cows. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. Um, yeah. now, your story is so interesting and it's, uh, like, I think, uh, happens to a lot of people. Not everyone takes the plunge. So, so, Recently, is it how, how many years ago did you leave your job as a uh, cancer researcher? 
Well, so I, I was first a cancer researcher for a while. And then after that, I was uh, what's called a biosafety officer for an academic institution here where I oversaw research. So I went from doing the research to overseeing research safety and compliance. And that was the position that I had most recently resigned from. And that was in uh, December of 2016. So right wow. at the end of the okay. year in 2016. So what, what does the lead up to making a decision like that look like so you know obviously it's a uh it'd be a, a comfortable job it's probably mm -hmm. pressure there's a steam that comes with it are you kind of uh attached to that to that role it's like you know you go to a dinner party and people say what do you do uh, are you what you do how does that whole what's the lead up look like is it is it um is it difficult or was it just a quick i, I can't do this anymore i need to i need a change it was not quick. It was a multiple year decision. Um, and, you know, my real my real goal was to be a cancer researcher. You know, I had done extensive education, um, spent like the majority of my life in educating, <laughs> getting myself educated to go that path. Um, so that was it was hard. Um, I left the, the cancer research position because of funding uh -huh. uh, shortages. And so, you know, my grant, my my lab was all grant funded and that was running out. And so then I thought, well, I'll use my background as a scientist to do this more administrative role. And I thought that would be a perfect fit for uh, a scientific climate where funding was really tight here in the U.S. nationally. Um, and still using my background and experience as a scientist to help other people comply with all of the ridiculous regulations that, you know, scientists have to comply with to conduct research safely. And, um, and so it, on paper, it was a good fit. Um, in practice, it was not in that, um, I was working about 60 to 80 hours a week Wow. and there was just no end in sight. And so after three years, I was completely burnt out. And, um, I was like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I, um, I was actually at the institution that I had done my graduate work at and, um, here in the Vermont, New Hampshire area, it's called Dartmouth college. And, uh, I never left the area because I absolutely fell in love with the rural landscape and the small communities and, and all of that. And, and I'm like, why am I living here if all I'm doing is working around the clock? You yeah. know, I I never get to step outside and and actually enjoy the whole point of me making the decision to stay here. Yep. Um, so that um, through a lot of soul searching <laughs> <laughs> and and getting to the point of just uh, somewhat desperation, really, that mentally my mental health was suffering and my physical health was too, because I didn't have time to exercise or anything. And I realized that I needed to make some sort of big change, even if that meant saying goodbye to a scientific career that I had worked so hard to get. And so what was that feeling like when you did it, you pulled the pulled the trigger and said, okay, that's it, I'm out, and now yeah. I have an opportunity to uh, shape my life in the way that I want it to be. How, how did that feel? It was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't have a plan. Mm. Um, I had saved up uh, so that that, you know, decision was easier to make. I had a little bit of time yep. to decide. I also have a, a supportive 
spouse who can, you know, support me financially right. through this. Uh, so that I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, and at the time I had just gotten my first DSLR about a year prior to yep. that. And, um, you know, photography had been a lifelong interest of mine, but not one that I really allowed myself to pursue because I was like, nope, this is my path. I don't have time for that. But it, anytime I went for a hike or spent time outside, I'd be like, oh, I wish I had a camera. I wish I had a <sighs> camera. And um, so I felt like I was sort of composing things in my mind, even if I wasn't creating the images. And um, so when I finally got the camera, sort of this whole world opened up to me. And that was the year prior to my resignation. And I was also at the time interested in um, laboratory sustainability. So mm -hmm. bringing sort of green practices into the laboratory. And so when I resigned, I was like, okay, I'm going to pursue both of these, you know, lab sustainability and photography. And I'm just going to kind of see what happens. And interestingly, I don't know, fate or whatever you want to call it, like the doors for photography kept opening and the doors with lab sustainability kept closing. And so I went that's how I sort of, you know, navigated towards photography. And um, what also helped was, you know, I said I just resigned in December of 2016. In January of 2017, I went to the Yukon, the Canadian Yukon, and spent about two weeks there. And that was my first real uh, photography trip. And right. it just blew my mind away. And I was like, there is nothing I want to do more than this. <laughs> Um, so that, that was a great, um, start to, to really, um, solidifying that passion in my mind. And everything changed. And then you started to, uh, teach yourself landscape photography. Now mm -hmm. on the podcast, I specialize in portrait photography. However, I think that all photographers, I think everyone in the world, in fact, should embrace the mindfulness that landscape photography brings you. So I w I love landscape photography for no other reason than just because it makes me happy and it mm -hmm. makes me uh, mindful. So I'm constantly um, looking at clouds, I'm looking at light, I'm looking at birds, I'm looking at landscapes and I'm looking at the right time of day and just that to be able to do uh, a trip or an afternoon or a couple of hours and get those uh, images is pure mm. joy. And also, I think, for portrait photographers to have the ability to recognize great uh, landscapes, then you can combine those with the portraits. So I think it's um, it's a, it's a, it's an absolutely beautiful uh, skill to have for um, mental health and mm -hmm. also to elevate your photography. So I'm actually uh, a big fan of landscape photography. So let's um, – the other thing, Brenda, that I love yeah. that you do is the manifesto. Um, should I read it out or do you happen to have it handy? I'd love to hear it in your voice. Um, sure. If you can pull it up quickly. I will. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot. Uh, no, this that's brilliant. okay. brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and if people want to see it, it's at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash manifesto. And all those links will be in the show notes. Great. So I came up with this because, um, you know, Outdoor Photography School, this is the platform that I'm building that is uh, teaching landscape and nature photography. Yep. And one of my main goals in creating it isn't isn't just to 
teach the photography aspects of landscape and nature photography, but also the outdoor aspects, mm. um, which is something that I feel is missed often on uh, photography websites, you know, learned photography websites. They don't talk about what are the skills you need to be in the outdoors and how to be safe in the outdoors and how to respect the outdoors. Mm. And a trend that I've been seeing, uh, especially through platforms like Instagram, is that um, outdoor photography actually has had a, a fairly negative impact on the mm. environment. And so I feel like there is a way to do it better and a way to do it more responsibly. And um, one of my goals with outdoor photography school is to help people connect with nature more through their photography. And, and that kind of gets at what you were saying before with um, having using nature as a way of um, healing, as a way of tapping into your creativity more and, um, you know, getting into a better uh, mindset. Mm. And I think doing that comes from being able to connect with nature. So all of that to say that I, I wanted to put forth a statement that basically um, talks about these core values of it's not about the photography. It's really about the nature and the connecting with nature. And, and we're just doing that through photography. And so the manifesto, um, what I hope people who are part of the outdoor photography school community are willing to commit to. And so I'll just read the, the yep. manifesto. All right. So at OPS, we commit to put nature first, even if it means missing the shot, respect all species and ecosystems, be kind to others, lead by example. Remember that we are part, a part of nature, not separate from it. Know before we go, leave no trace, pack it in, pack it out know our limits, plan for the unexpected, advocate for untouched landscapes, dark night skies, and keeping wildlife wild, produce images with integrity and authenticity, explore the outdoors rather than sit in front of a screen, and protect what's left like our lives depend on it. I love that. That's uh, brilliant. Thank you, Brenda, for putting that out. That is beautiful. And there is still an image that... Um, I didn't take, uh, and I can remember it. This th th there are many, and they're burned into my psyche. And I, it was uh, a sunrise in Guatemala. I just watched mm. it, and there's many of those moments where I've decided I don't need the camera here, and right. it's not always about the camera. And I, I see it on Instagram, and it really it does it upsets me. It breaks my heart that it's like you see people just chasing this shot that everyone else has got it's like this this shot list that we go to this uh, lavender field or we go to this uh, particular spot but we're ruining the locations and there's thousands of photographers traveling there for what it's like right these these postcard shots that everyone else has done so you know i think we do have a responsibility to uh, respect nature a bit more and i've heard so much this year about uh, night the pollution in the uh, the night sky, and uh, mm -hmm. that's something that we can also uh, try and um, I don't know lobby for. Just be aware of because it's uh, it's 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 changing so rapidly, isn't it? And uh, we it just really need is. to be mindful. Yeah. yeah. So, um, all right. The 
so you're on your journey. It's 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 kind of like new and evolving. What um what are some of the things that you recognised as a like a, a new landscape photographer? How do we um, go beyond the cliche? In terms of compositions? Yes, in terms of everything, our whole approach, because it's like yeah. the first thing we see when people start doing landscape photography is the sunset. <laughs> right. <It's> so <laughs> overrated, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think they're, I mean, everybody has to start from where they are, right? Yep. So if they're, if they're inspired to photograph a sunset because it's beautiful and moving, yep. then great, go for it. Um, or even if you're inspired by an image on Instagram and you want to try to replicate that, um, there's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, but that doesn't get, uh, at your sort of core vision. Like what is it that is inspiring you to do, uh, photography? And so what I like to teach is, um, how to tap into your own creativity and what it is that you're trying to say with your photography. And one way that I find that it helps for me to, to learn how to do this is to, you know, when I'm at a, at a location or if I'm on a hike, um, you know, most of, most of the photography I do is not planned. Um, I much prefer to just go out on a hike or, you know, plan at least a route around Vermont, say, um, but not having any idea what it is that I'm going to find. Interesting. Because I like that. That That's yeah. the approach that I like. It's not the approach of all landscape photographers, though, Brenda, because like, a lot of them will use all the apps, know where the sun's going to be. It's a shot that they've planned for two years, and it's absolutely right. precise. Um, yeah. But you are more about the um, the accidental shoot, the discovery, right? It, I am. Yeah. yeah. And people may, may not know that if they've seen me on my YouTube channel, I, I created a whole series called Photo Pills Friday, yeah. where uh, for about six months, I put out a weekly video on how to learn photo pills, which is one of those planning apps. Yeah. And um, but I also I almost never use it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but I think it's valuable to understand how to use it when you need it. Yep. Um, but uh, it may give people the impression that I want to plan all my images. And I really don't. For me, I get more satisfaction out of discovering, as you were yep. saying, and in that exploration process. And so really slowing down and just trying to pay attention. What, are, what is my eye getting drawn to? If, if, if all of a sudden I'm looking at something and I'm, I'm being sort of pulled to it, what is it? Is it the light? Is it the, the texture that that light is creating because of the angle of the light? Is it a, a, play of different colors? Are there um, lines being formed out of contrast that wouldn't be there under different lighting conditions or weather conditions or whatever? And so I try to just be curious. I try to ask myself, what is it? What am I being drawn to? What do I see? Um, and and really try to tune in. And, and, and what I find that does is um, the there is no expectation of finding something because mm -hmm. you're just, you're looking, you're exploring, you're being open to whatever's there. And, um, and that kind of keeps you in that present moment and not just on a mission to get the one shot, mm -hmm. you know, now say I am going to 
a particular location to photograph a waterfall or something like that. I'll, I'll go do that composition or that image. And then I uh, sometimes play this little game with myself of, okay, I'm not allowed to move for the next five or 10 minutes. All right, and I just have to like, what do I see? What else do I see? What else do I see? <laughs> it's like a very repetitious thing. But like all of a sudden, you know, at, at first it feels sort of like, oh, this is boring. Um, but then I'm like, oh, I'm hearing this sound. I didn't realize there was another tributary to this water source over beyond the trees over there. I wouldn't have noticed that if I hadn't sat there and listened, you know, um, or I start to notice different types of vegetation and plant life that I would have just completely overlooked before. And now this could be some really interesting close up or macro shots. Um, and so sometimes I'll go to a place thinking, yeah, I'm just going to go uh, photograph this stream. We just had a great rainstorm. The water levels will be high and I'll end up spending, you know, four or five hours in this location, just poking around all of these little tiny potential compositions that could be there that may or may not even include the water. Yep. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I, I encourage people to, to really just try to slow down and, and learn to pay attention to these different types of things. You know, what is it that your eye is being drawn to and why, you know, if it's, uh, you know, maybe it's the atmosphere, maybe it's the color, maybe it's the texture, maybe all of a sudden you realize there's this network of leading lines that aren't that obvious, but that's why your eye is being drawn in, you know, and that can, can help you figure out what it is that you're photographing, what your subject is, and then how to sort of put all the pieces together to make it into a more cohesive composition. One of the things I talk about a lot on the podcast is I think the greatest moment in a photographer's life is when they see the light, okay? And then the yes. next greatest <laughs> moment is when they work out what to do with it. So, yeah, and it's a really, like we talk about it a lot, the light, the light, the light. But when you're new, all light looks the same. It just all looks the same and you can't mm -hmm. sort of distinguish those little subtle differences. Have you got a technique or uh, any insight into actually helping people to discover the different qualities of light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I actually just did a podcast on it. Oh, um, excellent. <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, episode eighteen. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll double check for yeah. on you for you. Um, and so you know, different things to think about are. Um, the direction of the light. Mm -hmm. So that's one one starting place that that's pretty easy is to so, just start to think okay. about where is the light coming from? Why is that important? The direction of light because it's like I see it all the time. The the go-to is like backlit or frontlit landscapes. How can you change when you change the direction of light? What happens? Well, it changes the the quality of what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So for instance, um, front light, when the, when the light is coming from behind you and directly onto, onto the subject that tends to, uh, wash out, um, shadow areas mm -hmm. or, or, or depending on where, you know, if the light is coming from directly behind you or overhead, but still behind you, you yeah. know, that can change also sort of how contrasty the scene can be. It can change the quality of the colors, um, sometimes the colors can be washed out if yeah. it's too harsh of a light 
Whereas if it's backlit, um, now you've got, uh, your subject might be in the shadow. And so now you've got a high dynamic range scene. So you've got to figure out, well, what is the most important part of this image? Is it, is it the light in the sky or is it the subject that's in the shadow or do I want to make the subject more of a silhouette and have it be a little moodier or even if, if we're not thinking about the grand landscape, but you're thinking about like a small subject, like a flower, mm-hmm. a backlit flower has a very different feel. You might get rim light. You might start to pick up all these little like hairs on the yeah. petals or whatever. And it, it, it gives it much more detail and, and delicacy to it um, versus front light, which makes it look, you know, bright and happy you know yeah, bright and happy um, that's a, yeah and so it gives yeah. a personality as well it changes the the vibe across the shot yeah. and it and it yeah. and it it will highlight uh different features so like you know I'm I'm glad you pointed out the 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 tiny flower but there's also the 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 large landscape so when you've got it flat it's a bit washed out but when you've got the light grating across or backlit it's a completely different vibe just on mm. that um there was a like a few years there where HDR, uh, and it's still done, where mm. uh, people are are capturing every single part of the scene. So there's detail in the highlights, detail through the shadows. To me, those images um, lack. There, it's too much. It's overwhelming. What what's like? I prefer uh, something a bit more authentic. I don't mind a blown out part of the sky what what's your take on that yeah I don't do that uh my preference for my own uh photography is not to do a lot of HDR um most of the time um I find that the dynamic range in the camera is sufficient Mm. to um capture both um and maybe I'm not photographing a whole lot of really high dynamic, mm-hmm. uh, range scenes. Um, I, I have taken multiple exposures and then tried to figure out, you know, blending them in Photoshop and, but I'm often not pleased with the image. Usually what I would do is take one, one exposure and then say, if I, I find that, um, I would like to do a little bit of blending then in Lightroom, I will, you know, make a virtual copy of that file overexpose one a little bit, underexpose the other, and then put those into Lightroom and then blend them with yep. masking and, and whatnot that way. Um, and that feels a, like it's a little bit less harsh. Yep. Um, because otherwise, you know, what what can happen sometimes with these high dynamic images is that they they get to look too flat and yeah. and, and artificial looking. Yeah. Um, and it's not really how our eyes no. see the scene. So even though our eyes have much more dynamic range than our cameras do, um, and so it is misleading in that we can see the shadow detail and our cameras might not be able to, but, um, but we are only, you know, we only look at a tiny percentage of the scene at any given time. Yep. And so our eyes are constantly adjusting to the shadow areas, to the bright areas, if we're looking at those different spots. Yeah, and adjusting to the light as well and also the temperature of the light. So, you know, yeah. uh, constantly. So when you're uh, setting up a shot, have you, like, because I know 
all my portraits, I can tell you the favorite focal length and I just go there intuitively. Um, mm. When you're shooting, uh, after a while you get to a point where you do start to just um, set set the camera up, frame it up, it becomes intuitive. Is there a go-to that you find that you just keep going back to that is your 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 comfort focal length that is the like the height that you like to shoot at have you got a kind of a a default setting or are you trying to just be a bit more mindful and uh th- there's room for for movement there it depends on my sort of goals for the day mm. when i'm out so um i'll i'll start with what my my go-to lenses are yep. um so 70 uh sorry the, the 24 to 70 yep. and the 70 to 200 right. almost never leave my bag um and here in vermont oh, there's a couple of reasons for that one like as i was saying earlier in vermont we don't really have the gigantic wide open landscape so i don't really need to have anything wider than 24 uh-huh. millimeters like maybe 20 would be good but in that like 14 to 24 range it's just too wide right um so I only take that lens out if I'm going into a, a bigger landscape like the West or Canada or, or someplace like that. Yeah. Um, so 24 to 70 is like my my standard go to. And I find that um, I really like 70. <laughs> yeah, right. For whatever reason. Me um, too. I, and I it, like it. Yeah, it's a good focal length. <laughs> it is. It's, it's surprising. Um, unless I'm trying to really get a lot of, uh, you know, like a near to far type of depth in the image where, uh, you know, like a stream where I'm focusing on some rocks in the foreground, then I might be more at the 24 and, and then my other favorite is, um, 400. So with the 70 to 200, I also have a a two X teleconverter that I use. Okay. So what happens there with the lens though? So what, what is, uh, what's the, uh, wide open on that your 70 to 200 standard? What is it? 2.8 or? It's a 2.8 fixed. 2.8, right. I, oh, okay. So, so so when I put the 2x converter on, it's like f5.6. Yeah, so you yeah. lose two stops. But right, how's the right. sharpness? Are you happy with it? Not terribly, but I'm not usually <laughs> – not, not wide open. I'm not. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I'm usually around like f14, f16. Okay, so again, you've got to do that compensation where you stop down to compensate yeah. for the fact that you've bolted another bit of glass onto your uh, lens. Exactly. At that 400, what is it that you're trying to achieve? What What is it that you like about that, that uh, compression shooting 400? What does that do to the image? Uh, depends on the, on the subject. So if it's, um, you know, something that I'm zooming in, say, say I'm like shooting across a valley to, Mm. uh, you know, trees, um, down in the mountain valley or something like that. I'm, Mm. I'm, I'm looking for sort of portrait images of nature, if you will. So, um, what I, I, and it's, you know, one thing that I like to do when I'm going on some hikes is to, to have a view, not just of, other mountains, but I like to look down into valleys like that because you can find sometimes, um, interesting shapes of say like a birch tree, which has, you know, a bright white bark can really stand out Mm. in a forest. And so, you know, finding little things like that or a little cluster of pine trees covered in snow has a very different look when you're shooting from above like that. So I'll look for that with the, the, the more telephoto lenses. Um, or even if I'm just in the woods, you know, still not out of view, um, 
I love it for just really almost like macro. I don't, it's not a macro, but you know, sort of doing macro like photography where mm -hmm. it's very close up of the edge of a mushroom or all uh, right mushrooms water, have water you, i've been shooting mushrooms um they've all finished now what a joy that in itself yeah. as an act of mindfulness was just a delight and i did a little bit of light painting as well with the mushrooms oh and nice then, yeah so um that's yeah are you guys coming up to mushroom season is it we're we're or in it, yeah. You're in it we, now. It, it actually, yeah. yeah, it actually got extended because usually it's the spring. Yeah. Um, but we had a weird spring and summer so far in that our summer has been wetter than our spring, yeah. which is unusual. And so we had a, a a whole batch of mushrooms I've never even seen. Yeah. I I did do a, a little hike the other day and I thought it was a real foggy morning and I thought, ooh, I'm gonna get some like yeah. foggy woodland photos, you know, um. And I, I couldn't go more than like six inches on the trail without finding another mushroom. And, and yeah. it was different, different than the last. They're <laughs> so. gorgeous. And they, do you know they yeah. all talk to each other? Like you can have a, a group of mushrooms across uh, of the forest and they'll communicate with each other and go, hey, hey guys, over here. And then they'll all, like they're bizarre. They're just like they a, amazing. A, another, yeah. yeah. And so when I find them in groups like that, and I was really lucky enough to find you know, the red and white ones. Um, yeah. That they just look like they're out of a fairy tale. They just ended yeah. really quickly. I was so disappointed because I found them, started shooting them, and now I've got to wait again till uh, next year. But it's like this, right. is, uh, this is the delight of going into the forest because you've got these – it's not just about the um, – the large, you know, super wide angle shot. If you look around enough, you're going to find uh, these beautiful little, um, you know, images of, uh, you know, things like mushrooms. And, and I, I was shooting mine with a macro lens, which was uh, super lovely as well. So I highly recommend yeah. that. And a bit of, uh, have you done light painting with mushrooms? I haven't. No, I haven't tried that. So give that a go. Uh, lots of fun. So you just uh, use your iPhone torch, a couple of exposures, one without, one with the light, blend them together and you've got these uh, glowing mushrooms. Wow. That sounds it's, great. It's super cool. Yeah. It's super fun. So, yeah. So that's – um. Yeah, I love that. I love the, the, the variety and the way that you're thinking. When you're um, in the land and I've talked to a lot of uh, – landscape photographers that talk about spending some time trying to connect with the land first mm -hmm. it sounds a bit woo woo but I think that's like paying it that respect so you talk about that in your kind of manifesto that you don't mm -hmm. always need to take the shot so uh, when you get there you, you talk about that a lot are you sitting in that moment like not just like picking up your camera and shooting straight away just trying to connect first mm -hmm. yeah yeah I um I, I talk uh, in another podcast I did, I talk about sort of uh, a four step process that mm -hmm. I tend to do. It's not, I don't do this every time, but in general, when I'm going out and looking for, for uh, compositions, you know, this is sort of the, the process that I do. And that is one to connect with the scene. And that gets back to what we were just talking about, about slowing down and mm -hmm. just asking yourself, what do I see? Yep. And then you know, what am I being drawn to? Do I think there's a composition here or, or a subject that I, I want to try to figure out whether I can make a composition with it? And then the next step would be to start taking inventory. So 
what sort of relationships are there between the subject and other things in the scene. So other things could be like inventory could be like, okay, I'm photographing this tree. What else do I see? Okay, there's a few rocks over here. Could they make a foreground element? Hmm, I don't know. Um, or, oh, the, the trail has a nice turn to it. Maybe I can use that as a leading line. Or um, the way the, the light is hitting its side light, so it's creating some contrast and some texture on the bark or, you know, different things like that. So just starting to take inventory of what sort of what do I see in terms of colors, shapes, lines, um, other objects, and can these become supporting characters to the subject? Can I, can I use them as a way to help tell the story or as a way of, um, taking a viewer t through the frame to the subject? Right. And so that leads me then to my third step, which is positioning. So, okay, once I've taken this inventory and I think these are the different elements that I want to include, where do I need to be? Where does the, you know, where, how high does the camera need to be? Um, and what position should I put it in and what focal length would be best to help frame so, that? So on height, Brenda, what, what's, um, yeah. what, how do you determine whether to be low down or eye level or what's the factor that determines that? Usually it's what's in the midground, um, you know, because the higher you go, the more midground you'll end up with. Mm -hmm. So if there's nothing a whole lot interesting there, then, you know, I might want to be lower mm -hmm. um, or it might also depend on how is the land? Is the land going dipping down and then up or is it just rising or is it falling? You know, those types of considerations need to be taken into place, too. Um, usually I end up low. Mm -hmm. So um, below waist? Yeah, yeah. I'm usually kneeling. Kneeling, right. And, and I'm you short. tripod? I'm tiny. So. Yeah. Do you, do you shoot tripod? Yes. Yes. Yeah, almost uh, always. Because um, typically, uh, in terms of settings, typically, of course, it could always change. I want to be shooting at the, the lowest ISO possible. So uh -huh. hopefully ISO 100. 100. Yeah. And then... My focal length, you know, generally, if I'm trying to get a deep depth of field in the image, then I want to be around f14 to f18 sometimes, uh -huh. um, depending on the focal length. And then, uh, and then shutter speed is sort of the last thing that I'll adjust. Yep. Um, and so long as motion isn't an issue, so. Mm -hmm trees aren't blowing in yep. the wind or ferns aren't flapping around and that sort of thing, then a, a long shutter speed would, would, you know, compensate for having a stop down aperture in the low ISO. Right. Um, so of course that, um, for instance, a challenge with, uh, photographing waterfalls and streams, which is one of my, my favorite subjects to photograph is I like to do that creamy look. So I'm using a longer shutter uh -huh. speed. Often I'm using a polarizing filter and then maybe also, uh, um, neutral density filter right. to um, slow the shutter a, speed down. Have you got a recommendation on the ND filter? I use uh, breakthrough photography filters. Um, really like them. Uh, and the ND filter that I tend to gravitate towards is a three-stop or a six-stop. But oh, yeah, I find right. that that the three... Three is plenty, um, isn't it? Who uses six? I've yeah. got one, but it's like they're difficult to use, aren't they? It's a lot. They are. I kind they of are. Need, they, yeah. Yeah. I have a 10 stop and I almost never use it. Yeah, right. 
Um, Those, but, um, yeah. sorry, Brenda, the, the, the motion images, like when you're getting, getting that silky water, what's your mm-hmm. generally go-to? Are you a fan of like, because you can have very, like you'd have a 30-second exposure and you just end up with this flat, water right yeah have you got right. a, a preference like do you like to show a bit of movement like i prefer seeing I like a bit of swirling like i want to see the action uh, right have you got a preferred shutter speed there it depends on the flow of the mm. water so i find that i have to take a few test shots to get the look that i want but so you generally just bracket? you just bracket there when you're shooting nope i'm just um not not bracketing in the sense that i would combine those images mm. later but but I'll take, you know, I'll do a half a second yep. up to two seconds mm. or so usually it's in that like one sixth of a second up yep. to four seconds mm. is generally the, the range for the type of water that I'm typically photographing. Now, if I was in Iceland, you know, photographing those massive waterfalls that mm. are, you know, falling at a much higher rate, um, you don't you could get away with probably one twentieth of a second and still yep. get that creamy look. Mm. Um or what I would usually what I try to do is get the creamy, silky look for more uh, delicate sort of waterfalls, the ones that aren't like super powerful because I'm trying to capture the emotion of it feeling calm and peaceful and smooth and soothing versus, uh, say, a waterfall in Iceland that might be, you know, massive. It's really loud. There's a lot of power then I might be using like one one eight uh, hundredth of a second or one two thousandth of a second to really freeze the water in its motion. So yep. you're catching all the, of the texture in the water yes. and everything. And and that, to me, uh, will relay a different message than if it was creamy. Yeah, it's two different ways of looking. It's quite powerful and, you know, you've got all that texture there compared to like, uh, the, the 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 dreamy vibe as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that. And just as like for the listeners, if you've never done a waterfall and you want to get a sense of what that feels like and you want to practice before you go, just set your tripod up in front of your tap or your shower. Right. Set your images up, get the shower running or the tap running and then just play with the shutter speed and you'll have a look at like when you you know crank it up like fast shutter speed you freeze the uh freeze the uh the droplets and then the opposite when you've got a slower shutter speed and so you get an idea of what that feels like before you actually head out in the field yeah and and you know the nd filters aren't even all that necessary for no. for every camera setup because you can sometimes even go below your base iso settings right on a lot of dslrs and so you can you know get a, a longer shutter speed that way too. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a matter of experimenting and, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, um, but they're handy to have, I think, if you're going to be they are. loving. Uh, so with your tripod, because uh, mm-hmm. you're hiking a bit, have you got a carbon one or are you just lugging a heavy one? Mm-mm, no. <laughs> no, I I, uh, I have lightened up my kit recently. Yeah. Um, so I, I shoot Nikon um, only because that was the first camera I, I had. And so I, I just stuck with the system. I, I uh-huh. like it fine. Um, and I went from a, a D810 with um, really heavy, heavy lenses to the Z7 yep. mirrorless uh-huh. with the mirrorless lenses. It's so much lighter. Yes. It's made such a huge difference. And then I have a, a Gitzo carbon uh, travel tripod and it's pretty lightweight. It's not 
super steady. Yeah. Um, do you do anything to out out in the field just to steady it? Is there a, like do you add some rocks or some weights yeah. or? Yeah, you can. So it has a hook on yep. the bottom of the center column, and and if I need to, like if I'm in water, mm-hmm. um, I find that it's not sufficiently heavy to sort of hold hold yep. things in place. Um, so I do have a heavier tripod for things like night sky photography, where um, you you really want to make sure that things are uh, super steady. Um, but for the most part, my little lightweight one is sufficient. And then, like you said, I can just either hang my camera bag from the center column or sometimes I'll bring just an empty like cinch sack yeah. and then fill it with dirt or rocks or whatever. Yeah. And, and it does fine. a trick. So, you know, it just saves yeah. you like, so you can have the lighter tripod and uh, you just got to make sure you bring that extra stuff and yeah, it works. It's a, it's a yeah. good way to do it. That all sounds amazing. And also, um, how do we uh, avoid the cliches? What's is there a better place to look at inspiration? What like what inspires you in terms of um, landscape photography? Where I'm are looking you looking? At other, yeah, yeah. Um, primarily on Instagram mm-hmm. I, is how I've connected with other photographers. Um, I would say. That's probably the, the, the most So tell me, Brenda, what yeah. stops you in your tracks when you see a landscape um, image? What is it that you say that's beautiful, that moves me, or what is it? What do you notice? Yeah, for me, it's usually the more intimate landscape, um, the one that is not easy to replicate, that somebody has noticed something in, in the landscape or in nature that um, – might be missed by Mm. most people. So I really like the less obvious types of compositions or a way of, um, how colors are playing together. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes a little bit more of an abstract image I'll find really appealing, uh, just because it's different. And, 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 you know, somebody obviously had to connect with nature to see that Mm. and spend time there thinking about how to compose it and, and really be in immersed in it versus, uh, you know, what does not inspire me is the, you know, photograph of Maureen Lake with the woman in the red dress. Yes. <laughs> it's like <laughs> staged images like yeah. that yeah. or, um, this just, I don't find too appealing. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's overdone. Mm. And so, or, you know, somebody's, bare feet sticking out their camping tent with a beautiful view yep. uh, of the mountains. You know, it, it's just, um, and obviously it, that's my opinion. I, I just don't find that to be inspiring. Well, so you do a reverse I, image search with those images. Like you put one into Google and it'll find 50 million that are the same and they're all the same. Yeah. And it's like, you kind of sense it when you see that, but like, you know, the the beautiful art of discovery, like you've said a couple of you've painted some really lovely pictures. Like I've got the the image of the flower that's backlit now burned into my psyche. So I'm actually like I've got that now. I will probably go out and shoot that. And you know, even when we talked about the little mushrooms or, you know, zooming in at four hundred, it's do just think differently beyond that chocolate box shot because that chocolate right. box wide, everything is detailed, is like it's a lot it's just it's done. It's done. So that like, you know, right. we can spend that time 
being mindful and it is such a lovely practice and it's all about just because i think it's a, a beautiful thing to do i think just as a, in its own as a as a hobby um doing landscape photography is beautiful but also for all the portrait photographers i think understanding the land and then you can combine that with portraits is a beautiful thing so like that is amazing yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go along with the, that idea of, of combining the two, mm. um, you know, I think doing things like taking portraits of flowers, for instance, yes. or trees is great practice because you, for, for, you know, doing portraits of people in yes. the landscape, because you still have to read the light, you still have to understand how that's happening. And then the other thing that can happen, which I'm sure is common with um, people who are learning portrait photography too, is understanding what's behind your subject and how is that interfering or contributing to yes. in a positive way to the portrait. So if you have a tree coming out of someone's head, mm. you know, that might not be so great. So learning to see, um, you know, even if you're using a shallow depth of field and you're getting at that bokeh background, what are the colors or what's the what are the shadows doing? What's the contrast doing? And is that going to give sort of an unwanted um, effect in the image, even if you're focused on, on the subject. And so, and that can also get to backlighting, like backlighting or rim light can be a way of separating your subject from the background besides using a shallow depth of field. And so, um, you know, there are ways of, of practicing these concepts while being out in nature, even if you don't have models to work with, you can use rocks and you can yeah. use trees and flowers, you know, and no pressure. They're not going to tell you that, like, the tree's never going to go, are you done? <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's a great way to, like, if you're new to photography, it's a great way to ease in, understand the light, and there's always, like, the, the payment is just, like, so amazing because you get the time in nature um, and you get to be mindful, disconnect from everything else. You come home just feeling amazing. I'm just can't wait to get out there to, again yeah. and, and, and start shooting. Brenda, this is amazing. Congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on the tree change. I think it's fantastic that you can do this and, and grow this uh, beautiful um, audience that you're growing with your, uh, you know, landscape photography. So where can Thank people you. find you? So you've got the, it's the outdoor, photo and all these links will be in the show notes. So there's the outdoor photography podcast. You've also yep. got the YouTube channel, uh, which yep. is outdoor photography school. You've got an Instagram and then there's um, Facebook. So I'll put all those links in the show notes and um, people can go and uh, check out your work. Yeah. And then as this outdoorphotographyschool.com is where they can find sort of that's like the hub, the mm. main hub. And then if they want to look at my images, uh, that's just at brendapetrella.com. Fantastic. So hopefully everyone will stop by and say hello. Uh, I thank That'd you great. very much. I just wish you much continued uh, success and joy. Enjoy it out there. And uh, hopefully I'll get up there at some stage. Oh, that would be, be amazing. That would be fabulous. It's on my bucket list. So Good, yeah. good. We'll definitely give a holler. Oh, definitely. You meet the cows. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, for sure. And then I'm going to just watch the cows coming home. <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you so much, well, Brenda. Th thank you, Jean. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Brenda. You can view her online portfolio at brendapetrella.com. That's P-E-T-R. 
P-E-T-R-E-L-L-A, Petrella, but also check out her outdoor photography school at outdoorphotographyschool.com. We'll put all of the links in the show notes as well. Um, it will also put some of Brenda's images in the show notes, which you'll find at ginamilitia.com. They're absolutely gorgeous. Makes me want to go to Vermont and all the various places um, where she hangs out. You'll also find her at Instagram at Brenda Petrella. All right. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, This week, I have been busy redoing my website, and uh, I know that I am preaching to the converted for many of you who have already embraced the world of Shopify, but I have created a Shopify website, and I'm finding it so easy. I mentioned this for photographers because it's great if you want to sell prints because um, of its e-commerce function, and it's so easy to... uh, include different sizes to um, factor in your shipping. It uh, integrates with a lot of platforms. So I'm finding it very intuitive and very easy to connect with Shopify and then for for also um, to connect your Instagram and Facebook to a Shopify store as well. So um, yeah, I've only just started using it, but um, it's live now. You can check it out. And it seems to be very, very intuitive and very, very easy to use. So I just thought I would mention that. It's not sponsored at all. Uh, I, I, I pay for Shopify. <laughs> um, and uh, But it's something that I thought might be of use to some photographers who may want to sell prints or other products. All right. Uh, with If you want to connect with Gina on social media, she's Gina Militia M. I-L-I-C-I-A on all social media. If you want to connect with her and work with her as a member of the gold community, to find out more about that, go to ginamilitia.com and click on membership. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit ginamilitia.com.